This week is uh, is Parshat B'Shalach, which of course is chock full of amazing things. Obviously, the highlight is Shiratayam and Kriyat Yamsuf. We've talked about that in the past. Um, it ends with Mochemet Amalek, which is its own starring piece. Uh, it uh, it also has, of course, the very critical uh, story of the Man, which is sort of the centerpiece of the Parsha, the centerpiece of the whole travelogue between Mitzrayim and Sinai, and all the things that we've talked about. I want to talk about one often overlooked detail, which is at the very beginning of Parshat B'Shalach, and uh, I believe it helps kind of inform a lot more of the career of Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, the Pasha begins, Parenthetically, revealed be known as a illuminating article about what the what uh, Hashem's concern here was, and not having Bnei Yisrael go on the Via Maris on the coast road, uh, that they might get scared when they see war. And they're going to come back to Mitzrayim. So instead, by right? So Hashem turned them. Parenthetically, there's a midrash that this is a midrash, this is a source for Hasebat the Seder. But He turned them to go in towards the desert, in other words, south uh, towards Yamsuf, and they all left Chamushim, which simple read of that means that they were armed in some sense. Now, this pasuk is out of order, as you can see. Vayikach Moshe et atzmot Yosef imo. Ki ashpeh ha'ishpeh b'nei Yisrael imor pakod yifkod elohim etchem al-yitim atatzmotai mizayitchem. Why is that out of order? Because b'nei Yisrael are already traveling. They're already moving instinctively, perhaps, towards the north and hit the coast road and then go up to to Canaan, and instead Hashem turns them. How does Hashem turn them? Uh, we're going to hear that a little later on in the parsha. There's a cloud that's leading them, and the cloud leads them instead south and due east to go towards Yamsuf. And then we find that Moshe took Atzmot Yosef with him, which means that when Moshe left the capital, he went and disinterred the bones of Yosef that were in some sort of a sarcophagus, and he took them with him, which seems to mean that this is something that happened earlier uh, before they actually left the town. Now, what's the reason that Moshe takes the bones? Because Hashem, because um, Yosef had made B'nai Yisrael, literally B'nai Yisrael, his brothers, take an oath, which was, we're going to come back to that. God will indeed remember you, which means your life here in Egypt as cushy and as Pleasant as it is right now, Yosef saying to his brothers, is not where you're supposed to be. God will remember you and bring you back. And when he brings you back, take my bones with you when you go. Right? And we've talked in the past about a, Yosef's job was to bring them back to Israel. Therefore, he had to wait in Mitzrayim until they went. But the question I want to ask is two things. Why is Moshe the one charged with this? Why doesn't Moshe hand this off to somebody else? I mean, Moshe's leading the whole nation. Why doesn't he direct one of our own sons, or why doesn't he direct, um, I mean, there's no kahuna yet, why doesn't he direct uh, some member of another tribe and honor them? You get the honor of taking Yosef's bones. 
Why doesn't he tell Yoshua to do this? After all, Yoshua is a direct descendant of Yosef. Why does he do it himself? The second question I want to ask is, why is it placed out of order? Why is it mentioned here? Why isn't it mentioned at the beginning of this passage, or perhaps back in Parshat Bo, when it talks about Bnei Israel leaving their place to go to Sukkot from Ramses? All right, so we're going to come back to that. And they leave Sukkot, and they go to Etam, which is the edge of the desert. Now, important note, just as a parenthetic thing, they left Ra'am Maseis. Ra'am Maseis, which was one of their settlements in Mitzrayim, and they immediately moved, this is on the 15th in the morning, they moved to Sukkot. Sukkot is not an Egyptian name. Sukkot is a Canaanite word. We know a place called Sukkot in the Jordan, which is Yaakov's Sukkot. Right, So it sounds as if there is some sort of a Canaanite settlement, or perhaps even an Israelite settlement, on the outskirts of Egypt, moving east, which has remained there, and that's where B'nai Israel camp. Either that, or they camped at some empty place and built Sukkot, and they called it Sukkot because of the clouds. But it sounds like there was a place already called Sukkot there, just as a parenthetic note. But again, the question is, why is Moshe the one carrying out Sukkot Yosef, and why is... Uh, and why is it mentioned here out of order? All right, so let's look at that source for where Yosef uh, uh, issues this oath. This is at the very end of uh, of Breshit. So Yosef's on his deathbed. He says, I am dying. There we go. Notice what he says. God will remember you, and God will bring you up out of this land. Notice how it's quoted in Shmot. You bring my bones up from here, which of course is what Yosef says in the next line. What it leaves out is, God will remember you and bring you out of the land. Instead, the Kapazuk conflates them. God will remember you, and look at the next line of what Yosef says. Now, that indeed is the oath, and that's what the text is quoting. But the text left out the the p- passage about taking us out, which, of course, is in the middle of happening now, so perhaps there's no need to mention it. So if you take a look just at the two lines in Breshit, you could see an interesting correlation. Is God will remember you and will bring you up out of this land. And then the oath is God will remember you, the same phrase, and then you will bring my bones up. Interesting conflation, and we'll come back to it. Now, we roll back to Yaakov going down to Mitzrayim. And a few weeks ago, I spoke about Beersheba and why Beersheba is consistently translated in the Septuagint nearly every time, not as Beersebe, but rather as uh, the well of the oath. Freyate de Orca, right, the well of the oath. Because the oath that I contended that the, the oath that's so significant in Beersheba is not the oath that Avram took with Avimelech or that Yitzchak did with Avimelech, but rather the oath that Hashem gave to Yaakov when he left Eretz Yisrael, or it's Canaan, and he said to him, Anochi ered imcha Mitzrayim, among other things, Anochi alcha gamalo, I will go down with you to Mitzrayim and I will also bring you up. Okay? Now, notice what happens when Hashem speaks to Moshe the first time. At the snap. He says, oh, after all of the introductory pieces and take off your shoes, etc., and Moshe refusing to look, 
says, Source 4, that, I have heard their crying, because they're in pain. I am coming down to bring them, to save them. To save them from Egypt and to bring them up. Exactly the same words that Hashem used in the context of his promise to Yaakov, I'm going to go down with you and bring you back up. Okay, so at this point, we've got to sort of ask, what is happening here? And what it seems as if that Yosef's bones in this picture seem to be sort of a miniature model of Am Yisrael. Yosef's bones, not only Yosef came down to Mitzrayim, he was thrown into a pit. He ended up in Mitzrayim, thrown into a pit there, into the prison. And then ultimately his bones were put somewhere. And now we're bringing his bones up. And as you see in Bereshit at the end, in Source 2, that's sort of a model for bringing Am Yisrael up. But notice that when Hashem speaks to Moshe, he uses the same phraseology used with Yaakov, I am going down and I'm bringing you up. And now, instead of it being the person Yaakov, it's the people Yaakov, the people of Israel. Keep that in mind, we're still not there. Something, and this is really what caught my attention, the first thing that caught my attention about this whole topic, <clears throat> is that Moshe, when he runs away to Midian, and he meets Tzipora, meets Ruel, and he marries Ruel's daughter, Tzipora, and they have a kid. Vayikra et Shmo Gershon. Not Gershon, which would be a realistic, a, a meaningful name because it's a name in the Levi family, Gershon. Instead, he gives him a name that we haven't heard before, which is Gershom, and he explains what it means. Ger Hayiti Be'eretz Nochriah, meaning I am a Ger Sham. I'm a Ger, a stranger, a visitor there. Which means, by the way, an interesting thing is that wherever Moshe is, he feels like he's not at home. He's referring to his home as there. Away, not here. And it's Ger Shom. I'm a Ger Beretz Nochriyat. Okay? Now, one other piece to this puzzle about Moshe's young life happens just before that. Remember, that's the episode that happens when Moshe runs away after killing the Mitzri and after finding out that other Jews know about it and that Paro knows about it and Paro wants to kill him. He runs away, comes and saves the daughters, etc., and ends up marrying Tzipporah and then having the kid. Earlier, that whole scene starts with this. That series of scenes starts with this. This is after Moshe is raised in the palace. He grows up. He goes out to his brothers. And he sees their pain. What does he see? He sees an Egyptian striking one of his brethren Hebrews. What does he do? He looks around, and he sees that there's nobody there. What does he do? He strikes the Egyptian, and he buries him. Now, the word is an odd word. He strikes the Egyptian. What should it say? It should say, He kills him. In other words, what's Moshe's intent here? Is Moshe intending to to strike the guy or to kill the guy? He's looking around in all directions because he wants to be safe. He's not going to be safe if he only strikes the guy and the guy lives. So he's clearly intending to kill him. So why doesn't it say Vayaroga Damitri? Because what the text is doing is saying this is 
an appropriate punishment. Because what was the Mitzri doing to the Ivri? The Egyptian was striking him, so Moshe struck him. Of course, Moshe striking him was a little different, was with the intent of killing him. But there's something else going on in Moshe's and this is something that was brought to my attention by actually one of Rabbi Lamb's sermons that are now being published. And he quoted Yisrael Eldad, who in his Yigorot Mikra makes this point almost as an aside. But I think it's a very, val- a very valuable point. Let's take a look here. And this is where it's all going to start. <clears throat> Perhaps the most uh, catalyzing and the most foundational nevuah that exists in Breshit is Brit ben Avatarim. When Hashem speaks to Avram and tells him essentially what the history of his children is going to look like, either as a one-time cycle of events or else as an ongoing cycle of events, which is as follows. We all know this phrase. Avram says to, Hashem says to Avram, you should know that your children are going to be strangers in a foreign land, and they're going to be oppressed for a very long time. I will judge the nation that oppresses them, and then they'll live with great wealth. Okay, this is a promise given to Avram. So now I'm going to ask a very large theological question. When God makes a promise a promise about how things are going to play out, and a promise of what he's going to do in response. What is our responsibility towards that promise? And I think it's safe to say that most people would answer, nothing. Our responsibility is, if possible, to see it happening, recognize it, give thanks for it, and when the door opens, go through the door and leave, but not to have anything to do with activating it. Yet, I'm not sure that that was the way Moshe Rabbeinu saw things. Notice what happens. The promise given to Avram that we're going to arguendo, claim that Moshe was aware of, and I think it's good good basis for that. Your children will be strangers in a foreign land. What does Moshe call his son? Ger Shom. Almost as if Moshe is saying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, See, it's happened already. We're strangers in a foreign land. And he even refers to his, where he's living as Sham, not Po, not Khan, but Ger Sham. The next thing that happens is, although it happened earlier, but the next thing that we looked at is Moshe goes out to see how his brethren are doing, and he sees an Ivri being struck, which means that this part of the Pasuk has been fulfilled. They are being enslaved and oppressed. What does Moshe do to the Mitzri? He doesn't report him. He doesn't demote him. He kills him. And the word used is Vayam. Please take a look at what Please look at what Hashem promises he's going to do to the nation that oppresses. He's going to judge them, which of course happens through what series of events? The Eser Makot, of which some of them, by the way, do use the word Vayach that uh, I'm going to smite you with Dever, etc., right, with Parad. So it's as if Moshe is trying to activate the divine promise and speed it along. It's something that we might refer to as sort of 
messianic activism, right? Messianic activism. In other words, it's not just that I'm waiting and anticipating redemption. I'm going to act in a way that's going to, if you will, push God towards that that action. Something that in a more technical term, we refer to as theurgy. Theurgy is doing human actions which sort of motivate or push or or get the wheel going for divine action and response. Now, I know that sounds foreign, it sounds crazy, and yet there's a Mishnah that says exactly that. You know which Mishnah I'm referring to, of course? The Mishnah Masachat Tanit that tells the story about Choni HaMa'agil. What did what happened that year when there was no rain? And unclear when when Choni lived, and Machok Pavli Yushami when he lived, but whatever it is, what happened the year that it didn't rain? They that year they came to Choni, what they asked him to do. You pray, meaning what was their first approach? You know how to appeal to God to get him to rain, make it rain, which means already we're talking about theurgy, meaning you're going to pray and your prayers are going to effectuate a change. He takes it much further. What does he end up doing? He ends up not only pleading with God, he ends up demanding of God in a way that Shimon Manshatach says to him, if you weren't Choni, I'd throw you in Cherem. How dare you speak to God that way? Which is, I'm drawing a circle. I'm not leaving the circle till it rains. And then when there's a few drops, he says, I don't mean that. And then when it comes storming, he says, I don't mean that. I mean Gishmei Bracha until there's finally good Geshem. And then he walks out. Which means that on the one hand, his behavior was seen by the Beit Din as inappropriate, but not inappropriate because it doesn't work. Inappropriate because it's chutzpah de klapei but it seems to work. So I'd like to suggest, perhaps, just as a proposal, that that's what Moshe Rabbeinu is doing here. Moshe Rabbeinu is naming his kid Gershom because he's trying to activate Gershom. And he strikes the Mitzri, and it's described as Vayach, even though he kills him, to to implicate both the Midah Kenege Midah, what the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew, Makah, also to pre-anticipate, as it will, as it were, foreshadow the Makot, that Moshe Rabbeinu is kind of starting that whole process of striking the Egyptians, and also to activate the that Hashem is going to judge them. And we're going to see more of this now. <clears throat> Wild thing. When Yaakov, when he first met Yaakov in Mitzrayim, meaning at the end of his life, at the beginning of Ayachi, Yaakov is, thinks he's on his deathbed. It's not so clear that he isn't on his deathbed, but he summons Yosef, Yosef alone, and he makes Yosef take an oath, a very famous oath with his hand on the thigh, take an oath that he will not bury him in Mitzrayim. Rather, he will take him to Canaan and bury him in Hebron in the, in the field that was bought by Abraham. The end of that phrase is a little strange. It ends with, Vayishtachu Yisrael al Rosh Hamita. That Yisrael, Ben Yaakov, bowed at the top of the bed. It's a very strange phrase. And the Midrashim, try to play with it and soften it and come with something else. However, if you look in the Septuagint, you will find that the, the description of what Yaakov did is a little different. It says, Yisrael epiton akron, on the top, tesrabdu autu. He bowed on the top of his staff. 
In other words, how are they reading the word al rosh ha? Not mita, but mateh. Now, that's a very strange thing. And alone, we would say somebody was, you know, asleep at the switch when they're translating it. The only problem is that the pshita, the famous Syriac translation, is a Jewish translation of Tanakh, has the same thing, right? And there's, you have the English translation. He bowed on top of his staff. Not only that, and I'm not happy bringing this as an aid, but we got three adim now, is in one of the Pauline epistles, he has the same description, although mixes it up between the stories, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. But the point is that there was a tradition that when Yaakov referred to as being brought back to Israel, he uses the staff as a focal point for recognizing that. And of course, what is plays a central role in the whole mosaic uh, uh, agency is the matet. It starts at the set, at the snare. And Mashem says, take the mata with you when you go. Right? So now I'd like to roll back to the beginning and then bring something towards at the end about this entire piece. Because we started by asking two questions. Why is Yosef the one to carry Yosef's bones with him? And why is it mentioned out of order? So I'd like to pose that the two actually go together. Moshe is the one to take Yosef because Moshe is the one to be in charge of being the lightning rod, if you will, for Gula. He is the one who, because of his own initiative in striking the Egyptian, in naming his child Gershom, Hashem then says to him, you're the man who is going to activate the Gula. And now, and now, when we roll back to Breshit, we see in those two passages in Source 2, that Yosef's bones being brought up is emblematic of Am Yisrael being brought out. So by Moshe being the one to in, be entrusted with Yosef's bones, it is it is emblematic of, and it's sort of a a a uh, uh, a miniature version of taking Am Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. Moshe taking Yosef's bones out is Moshe actively activating the Gulah uh, by taking them. And we find, of course, famously, that um, that in the in the um, in the tefillah, we mentioned, of course, in other words, we tie in the goel, which seems to be Moshe primarily. You bring a goel to their descendants, the descendants of the avot as tied in with the Chastea vote, which means that all these things happen in the vote. The promise is given to Abraham. The the way that Yaakov was sworn in Beit, in, Beit, in Beersheba, the way that Yaakov bowed towards his his staff, these are all things that then become activated in the Goel, Livnei Venehem. So I want to bring this together at the, at the end with a um, with a very famous Midrash, which becomes challenging for those of us who teach Tanakh and who really endeavor to instill good textual skills and analytic thinking in our students when studying Tanakh. You know, we're accustomed, unfortunately, to thinking that analytic skills and rigorous thinking is reserved for Gemara and more, uh, shall we say, experiential and uh, and spiritual kind of feeling is associated with the study of Tanakh. And as Luchenstein Zatzal used to say, you have to actually use both for both. 
You have to bring that ex- exciting, uh, creative, and spiritual experience to your study of Gemara, and you have to bring the analytic skills and the rigorous thinking to your study of Tanakh as well. And so we take a look at, uh, and so that's why I say it's part of the challenge of those of us who teach Tanakh and endeavor to instill rigorous thinking and skills is we often have to separate our students from when, especially when they're, let's say, in middle school and high school, to separate them from the Midrashim with which they grew up, not to separate them fully, but to give them a different perspective on it, to understand here's what the text says, here are Midrashim, here are the difficulties of the text, here's how Midrashim deal with it. In some cases, the Midrashim can help. In some cases, they don't speak to issues of of exegetical difficulties, but rather to try to glean new lessons. I bring that up because one of the most popular Midrashim that students are scandalized to find is not there explicitly in the Chumash, is Bat Paro's arm. Everybody loves Bat Paro's arm. What's the Pasuk? This is now rolling further back in Moshe's career to when Moshe is a newborn. So three months old. Bat Paro goes to bathe. And her maidens go with her. She sees the basket sitting there in the marshes. It's not floating anywhere, by the way. Literally, she takes her, sends her maidservant. The maidservant goes and brings it. Rashi on the spot says, By the way, so nobody remembers that part of the Rashi. They remember this. He quotes the Midrash, it's a Midrash in Masachat Sota, right, that Amata might mean, is Machloket, might mean her hand, like your Amata. He said, but if that was accurate, then there should be a Dagesh in the Mem, because the word Amma as a maidservant is written without a Dagesh in the Mem. The word Amma as the, the your arm, your forearm, is written with a Dagesh. And it's written without a dagesh, right? That, so that's, that's his point. Mem de gusha. Now, vehem darshu, but then he says, but the drasha, which Rashi says, not pshat. What's the drasha? Et amata et yada, ishtar beva amata, ishtar beva amata amot harbe. That her hand stretched out many amot, her ama, which we use as a measurement, stretched out many amot and gathered Moshe in. We have this arm extending very far and bringing it in. It's an image that we've all grown up with. Sapshat. What's the point of the Midrash? Now, sometimes you could say the point of the Midrash is to teach a lesson. point of the Midrash is to give us another angle on the personality of the people involved. What's the point of this Midrash? So I'd like to suggest, based on the following comment of Sforno, that here's what's going on in the Midrash. We have, of course, a great difficulty with the name Moshe. Because who names the baby Moshe? Not his parents. Evidently, although there is Achizkuni different, evidently he's named by Bat Paro. The difficulty is, how does Bat Paro know Hebrew? Right. Okay. So the Sforno says the following. So the Sforno assumes that she knows Hebrew, or she's, or she says he's a Hebrew boy. I'll ask somebody who knows Hebrew what to name him. Important to note. I called him Moshe not because I pulled him out, because then his name would be Nimshe or Mashui, but rather he will be someone who pulls others out. Moshe means someone who draws others out of the water, not somebody drawn out of the water. 
כי אמנם משיתיו מן המים, אחר שהיה מותר בתוכם. After all, I pulled him out of the water when he was there, וזה לא היה כאם בגזירת אירין. This must have been God's decree. כדי שימלא תו את אחרים, so that he will pull others out. In other words, the Sforno is saying that what Paparo recognizes here is that the miraculous salvation of Moshe through her agency foreshadows a greater salvation that he will be the key person for. He was saved so he can save others. He was saved out of the water so he can pull others out of the depths of Mitzrayim. Moshe, not Mashui, the one who pulls others out. Okay, so if that's the case, and we look at the whole story of Moshe being put in the water and being saved miraculously but by Paro as foreshadowing Yitzhak Mitzrayim, what is the very famous phrase that is used consistently to describe Yitzhak Mitzrayim, even though it's not used in the context of any other salvation? In Tanakh, that Hashem took us out b'yad chazaka with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And although the outstretched arm motif is a clearly Egyptian motif, and take a look at Dr. Josh Berman's Anima Amin to see some great stuff about that, there's also something else going on here, which is Hashem took us out with a strong arm, with an outstretched arm, and therefore we have Bat Paro having an outstretched arm to pull Moshe in to foreshadow that Geula. But for our purposes, what that also does is it immediately, at three months, turns Moshe Rabbeinu into the lightning rod for Geula, the one that attracts the attention and then gives that attention out, that theurgy out, that generates the movement to get the ball rolling for Geulat Am Yisrael, of which, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu is the ultimate shaliach of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to make that happen.